trusted rabbis are the authoritative voices throughout history on Jewish life, absolutely believe that the God of Israel is alive and active, that it's the rabbis who have really held up the authority and the authenticity of scriptures throughout history. They recognize this irrevocable calling on the Jewish people to be servants and witnesses of the glory of God. Now they're doing that blind to the reality that the Messiah has come, but God has made us distinct in the earth and we have this responsibility to reflect his glory. Welcome to A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. I'm your co-host, Carly Berna. And I'm Ezra Benjamin. We're a Jew and a Gentile who both believe in Jesus and believe that there's value in looking at history as well as today's world in the headlines through both a Jewish and a Christian lens. Just a heads up before we dive into our topic today, Carly, you know, A Jew and a Gentile Discuss is listener supported and we want to give you, our listeners, an opportunity at the end of this program to get more involved. So stay tuned for those details. Let's discuss. Well, Ezra, I'm excited for today's podcast because, as you know, on each episode, we always ask our audience to send in questions and we want to clarify anything for them. And today's episode is based on a question that someone sent in. So I'm going to read the question, then we're going to kind of talk through some different topics before we get to the answer at the end. Right. I'm sipping my espresso in anticipation because it's a meaty question. It's an important one, but meaty. Okay, go ahead. Yes, definitely. So the question that was sent in is, what are Messianic Jews' obligation to obey Jewish tradition established by the rabbis after the Bible was written? And I thought this was a really interesting question um, because obviously there was a lot of external content outside of the Bible and some Jewish people still follow that content. Uh, And we can kind of relate that to Christianity today. Obviously, we all have pastors that give us commentary outside of the Bible, and we have to figure out uh, what to listen to or not. And we'll kind of get to that later in uh, the episode. But let's start by just kind of defining rabbinic Judaism, which is kind of what this is referring to. Sure. And I think before I even do that, this is the espresso kicking in. Um, you referred to the Christian community and the idea of following pastors or following, you know, if you come from a more liturgical background, we can call it like high church, right? You would have bishops and bishops report to the archbishops and, you know, there's this whole hierarchical structure and you have uh, these these strata of leaders in that religious community, in a Christian community, and even like a head pastor versus, you know, an assistant pastor. And in, in every one of these communities, somebody's in essence in charge of saying, here's how we're going to live, right? But I think the unique thing about evangelical Christianity that I just want to highlight as unique before we talk about the Jewish community is this, I, I would say, idea by and large that the Bible is the living word of God, right? And this is the authoritative document. Now, different churches do different things. I think this is part of like so much of the debate today, right? On do you follow the Bible literally or do you let your church and your pastor and your pastoral team kind of interpret that how they see it as it relates to modern culture? So similar in Judaism, but what's not similar in at least the American Jewish experience, and I would even say, Carly, the Israeli Jewish experience and a lot of the mainline Jewish community experience around the world is there isn't necessarily this idea in the mainstream Jewish community that the Jewish scriptures, or we can say the Torah and then the prophets and the writings, or the Old Testament, as, as Christians would call it, is the primary place you go to when, you, when you're trying to figure out uh, who am I, who is God, and what's required of me. 
really it, people look more to the rabbis, either to their own rabbi in their own local congregation, if they're affiliated with the congregation, or if you're more religious to the historical writings of what rabbis who maybe lived two millennia or so ago have written uh, on what it means to be part of the people of Israel and what's expected of us. Who is God? How do I live before him? So that's maybe a difference is the Christian community says, yes, the Bible. And the Jewish community goes, ah, the rabbis. That's interesting. So it's kind of up to the rabbi's interpretation. And, and that makes me think of friends that I've had that were Jewish that say, oh, well, I went to my rabbi to get advice where often, sometimes a Christian will say that, but also they go to the Bible first to determine what they're going to do. Totally. Actually, one of the founders of the ministry you and I both work at, Jewish Voice, uh, came to faith in Jesus as a Jewish teenager, really young adult, right? Like in his late teens. And the first thing he did when he entered this crisis of, wait a minute, I, I believe Jesus is the Messiah. I believe he died for my sins. I've received him, but I'm Jewish. What do I do? Is, of course, he went to his rabbi. And his rabbi said, you know, behave. Don't do that. You can't believe that. And then only maybe weeks or months later does he actually pull out a Bible and look at what the Bible has to say. And that experience would be very similar uh, for many Jewish people, even most Jewish people, is we as a community rely very heavily on the rabbis. And we can talk about why that is, because there's some merit to it, but there's also some drawbacks. So how would you define rabbinic Judaism? Yeah, so, and let me say, in defining rabbinic Judaism, we're distinguishing between a rabbinic Judaism and then what we'll talk about next, which is a biblical Judaism, okay? So that's the distinction we're making. So rabbinic Judaism is the idea that the Torah, God's commandments for Israel, right? And there's 613 of them, in case you're ever on Jewish jeopardy, in Exodus through Deuteronomy, that this governs, these 613 commandments govern how we're supposed to live, right? God is holy. We're here to serve him as a chosen people who are supposed to be his servants and his witnesses. Now, how do we live out his law? Uh, and the rabbis have taken it upon themselves throughout the centuries to, in essence, interpret those 613 commandments and say, what do they look like in every age throughout history, in every place where Jewish communities have lived, and in every cultural reality that's faced Jewish communities that causes people to go, well, wait a minute, but what now? How do we do this commandment in light of the circumstance before us? So rabbinic Judaism is the, we'll say, religious structure or religious system um, based on rabbis or Jewish leaders, Jewish scholars, interpretation of the Torah as it relates to how every Jewish community throughout history, wherever we live, are supposed to live. That's kind of like the, if you will, the Ezra's version of the textbook definition. And I think the question is, well, wait a minute, the Bible is clear, right? It's been written. It's We think it's been preserved from the Hebrew into whatever languages it exists now, English or whatever. So if you have these very clear scriptures, why do you need uh, the rabbis to tell you what to do? right? A reasonable person would go, wait a minute, you know, what's going on here? And we have, to, we have to rewind actually back to the first exile of the Jewish people. We, you know, we read about it in Isaiah that, that these southern kingdoms or the north, Isaiah and Jeremiah, that, that the northern and the southern kingdoms of Israel, Israel and Judah and Benjamin, would be exiled. And, uh, you know, this is where we kind of get the term the lost tribes. We talk about that in other episodes. The northern kingdoms are exiled into the Assyrian Empire, seemingly never to be seen again. And then in the last, you know, couple hundred years, more and more communities are emerging on the world stage saying, we come from Israel and we've never forgotten who we are. But that's not who we're talking about. We're talking about those southern kingdoms, Judah and Benjamin and Levi, okay, living closer to Jerusalem. 
central in the promised land at the time. And Jeremiah has the difficult job of saying, you've sinned. And the Lord says, you're going to be kicked out of the land as a consequence for your sin. In essence, you can't stay here and you can't worship me in a temple in Jerusalem if you're going to have other gods. So I'm kicking you out of the land under the Babylonian Empire to Babylon and the surrounding area. And that's where you're going to be for 70 years. And I'll bring you back because I'm a promise keeper, even though you broke my promises. But you're going to be gone for 70 years. And so the, the real first advances in this idea of letting the rabbis interpret the Torah for us or interpret the Jewish scriptures came from this period of exile in Babylon. And the question was, how do we keep faithful to a Torah that's built around a sacrifice system? And anybody who's done the Bible in the year knows, right? Bulls and goats and sheep and turtle doves and what you bring into the temple and what parts you cut off and what parts you burn and what parts you just, you know, throw away. And there's this whole temple sacrifice system that God himself instituted. And he said, when you come into the land I've chosen, the land I promised to your forefathers, which is the land of Israel, and you come to the place I've chosen, which we understand was the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, this is what you're to do to worship me. And then all of a sudden you have people who are living without access to the land of Israel. And remember, the first temple is destroyed. So the question in the Jewish community was, how do we stay Jewish, right? How do we be Jewish and how do we fulfill God's commandments not living in the land of Israel and with no temple to sacrifice in? And so the rabbis had this job out of necessity of going, what do we do? What's, what's ways that we can honor what we understand to be the spirit of what God said, even though we can't literally carry it out? So that's part of the reason for rabbinic Judaism. And the other reason is this idea that, again, God is holy. And the more religious you are in, in, in the Jewish world, the, the higher concept you have in a way of the holiness of God. And just like, you know, Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments on these tablets, right? And the instructions to Israel are, don't even get near Mount Sinai, okay? Like, picture that in your mind. Like, don't even come near the base of the mountain. Moses is here with these tablets, but God's literally a burning fire in a cloud of thick smoke on the top of this mountain. And he says, don't approach the mountain, because if you do, you'll die. Like, you'll literally be struck down dead in the holiness of God. And so you can think of rabbinic Judaism then as almost like there was a fence around Sinai, don't come close lest you be under God's judgment. Rabbinic Judaism is that fence around the mountain of the Torah, if you will. What do we mean by that? That the rabbis have constructed these kind of uh, concentric circles of perimeters of what we should and shouldn't do to keep us from ever even getting close to, um, to breaking the Torah. So one really common example, maybe if, if you live in a city with a big Jewish community, uh, or if you have Jewish friends who are observant Jews, you've seen that the Jewish community will never eat meat and milk together, right? Like you just, and some people actually have, Carly, entirely separate kitchens and sets of dishes and separate dishwashers. And what are we doing? We're saying dairy and meat will never, ever, ever come into contact. And we're going, what does that have to do with Judaism? I don't see that in the Torah. And it comes from this little verse in you know, one of these 613 commandments where God says to Israel, you shall not boil a calf, a baby, a baby animal, a baby cow in its mother's milk. Okay, well, that's easy. Just don't milk a cow and then kill its offspring and make a meal, right? Like that's the literal interpretation. But the rabbi said, let's make sure nobody ever possibly even gets close to breaking that commandment. And so the way that that's evolved throughout history is the rabbis agreed, you know what? Better to not even eat milk and meat in the same meal 
better not to cook them in the same kitchen, and better not to ever let anybody else in the community see you with dairy and meat together. And so that's become like such a, such a foundational part of what it means to be an observant Jew today, is the idea of keep meat, milk, and, milk and meat separate. And it comes from this one tiny little verse, but that's a classic example of the fence around the law. So that's a good example because I can see how it could be challenging to be constantly trying to listen to whichever rabbi and whatever interpretation. Right. So what are some of the, I don't, I don't mean to kind of put you on the spot sure. and, um, you know, have you criticize your own people. Right. But what are some of the challenges with rabbinic Judaism? Yeah, I think I'll, I'll do the, you know, I'll, I'll be Jewish and start with the bad news, right? Like, anyway, I say that tongue in cheek. Our audience can't see me grinning widely. But we'll start with the bad news, and then we'll talk about what's virtuous about the idea of, of rabbinic Judaism as that's developed throughout history, okay? So the challenges are, I think we can all relate, whether we're in the Christian world, whether, you know, some of our listeners may have even come from a Muslim background, right, is the idea that when there's a holy book that we believe is inspired by the living God, okay, and then we rely on men to interpret for us what that book says. Like, praise the Lord, there's people who are giving themselves in study and intentionality to trying to do that, but men are fallible, right? Men are not God. Praise God. You know, God is God, and he alone is God, and he wrote the book, and we didn't. So there's that, that even throughout history, like one example I'm thinking of is uh, Hanukkah, which actually is not a biblical holiday. Uh, It's in that intertestamental period. Uh, between when the Old Testament scriptures were finished and when the New Testament was written. Uh, But the rabbis, in talking about why do we celebrate Hanukkah, there's actually over 80 different rabbinical interpretations. So that's just one example. And the, the rabbis don't agree. Like that's, you know, we say two Jews, three opinions. You know, three rabbis, you know, 75 opinions. But the idea there is everybody's doing their best to try to get at the spirit of what God was after, but we all see things through a different lens. And so you end up with, in a way, there's some things that are common to most rabbinic Jewish expression, like the meat and milk thing. But then you also end up with these other very fractured traditions throughout history where my rabbi says this and your rabbi says that, so I guess we're going to go our separate ways. And, you know, our Christian audience may be listening saying, that's terrible and that's ridiculous. One word, denominations. But anyway, that's a story for another day. So that's one thing that would be challenging. Um, and, And the other is, again, like rabbis in every generation, right, in every place on earth where Jewish people have been scattered, whether that's Yemen, the Yemenite Jewish community that's largely made Aliyah, immigrated back to Israel in recent years, the Russian Jewish community living in the midst of a Russian Orthodox Church trying to stay Jewish, Uh, and then more recently North American Jewish communities. These rabbis are trying to interpret this book that's thousands of years old called the Torah, right, and saying, how does that apply to us? So one example, um, it's kind of a stereotypical image, but if you can think in your mind's eye of when you hear religious Jewish person, maybe you're thinking of a man with curly hair down the sides of his head, and maybe you're thinking of a man in a black kind of short coat with stockings, if you've seen that, see it all over the place in Israel, even in New York City, and then even as extreme as kind of these huge fur hats, right? Like this, this giant-sized hats. I don't know, Carly, have you you've yes, seen these pictures? Yes, even here in Scottsdale I've seen. Right, like because that's somebody's particular rabbinic stream of Judaism. And you go, I mean, this is a great example. Thank you for saying Scottsdale. It's 118 degrees in July, and this dude's got a black coat on, right? Like he's going out to shovel snow, and he's got stockings on, and he's got a black fur hat on, and there's sweat pouring down his face. And he's trying to honor the Lord 
based on what his rabbi's rabbi's rabbi told him to do. Well, where did the tradition of the fur hats come from? It came from Russia when it was negative 118 degrees. I'm exaggerating, right? But like this very cold climate. But that rabbi said the way we we recognize God's authority on us by putting something on our head is we're going to wear a fur hat. And now you have people in Israel and Scottsdale and wherever else who follow that particular rabbi saying, this is how we honor God. And yet, culturally, you might say it's totally impractical. So that's the other challenge is rabbis are doing their best to interpret in every location and in every time in history, but the applicability of that or the relatability maybe for a modern Jewish community. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the culture's changed. That, that makes sense. Right is difficult. And then the third thing I'll say, since this is a Jew and a Gentile discussed, and we're always trying to talk about kind of those intersections of Jesus and Jewish faith and Christian religion and Jewish, you know, religion and tradition, is this. And and this is, you know, our, our Christian audience may not realize this. Actually, our Jewish audience may not know this, but I'll say, unfortunately, since the first century, when the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Israel, right, were expecting a Messiah who would be the ruling and conquering king, and they encountered Jesus, the rabbi from Nazareth, who came and said, I have to be lifted up on a tree so that I can draw all men to myself, and I'm coming to save you from your sins and to redeem Israel. And that wasn't what the leaders, the rabbis, the leaders of the community were expecting, even the priests and high priests, right? So out of Jesus not coming in the way we expected him to come, largely the Jewish people, including most leaders, rejected the messiahship of Jesus. And then because we're always trying to figure out through rabbinic Judaism and rabbinic instructions, how do we be Jewish and stay Jewish, it became ingrained in the very fabric of rabbinic Jewish teaching and life then for the centuries to come that to be Jewish is to reject Jesus as our Messiah. And that becomes ingrained even into some of the prayers in the daily prayer book that Jewish people pray around the world today, even into some of the traditions. I'm thinking of a, of a prayer called All Vows that's prayed on the eve of the Jewish Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, every year. And part of that prayer is actually renouncing any time in the previous year when somebody may have made you under duress confess Jesus as Messiah. Really? And, yeah. And where does that come from, right? You're like, well... Who, who can, you know, why, are, why is everybody praying that? It comes from a time in history when Christian communities were either at knife point or at force of confiscating farmland or whatever, going around to Jewish communities like in the Spanish Inquisition and saying, say you're Catholic or else. Say you believe in Jesus, say you believe in Mary. And so under duress, these Jewish communities would outwardly confess Jesus and inwardly retain their Jewish identity, sometimes at the cost of their own lives. And the rabbis were saying, look at the atrocities committed against us. We don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. So once a year on the eve of the holiest day on the Jewish calendar, we're going to make sure to renounce those vows. And don't believe me, Google it. You can figure it, you can find all of this. But uh, that's, that's the, I'll say as a Jewish believer in Jesus, it's unfortunate that out of a, in large part, a national or a Jewish leader's rejection of Jesus 2,000 years ago, we've actually built it into the framework of Jewish life is the perpetuation of Jesus not being an option and actually building teaching from the rabbis around that. Um, I'm thinking of one rabbi, you can Google this too, a couple decades ago died, and right before he died, he wrote a letter and he said, don't open this until a few decades later. So it was recently opened. It's all over the internet, even though they're trying to cover it up. He, he wrote in this letter, I know Jesus, Yeshu, which 
Yeshua in Hebrew is how you say Jesus, but the derogatory way to say it in Hebrew is Yeshu, which is an acronym for may his name be blotted out. But he says, I, I know that Yeshu, Yeshua, is the Messiah. He's the one we've waited for. And this was a major rabbi in Israel, right? So now you have a rabbi, a trusted leader saying, no, no, he is the one. But that goes so against all the millennia of other rabbinic teaching that now there's this crisis and people don't know what to do, so they bury it. Mm -hmm. But that's, anyway, yeah. that, that, that's an example of, of just, I would say, a really unfortunate consequence of, uh, of Jewish leaders missing, missing the first part of who Jesus, who our Messiah, needed to be. So that makes sense that those are some of the challenges, but let's talk about some of the good things yeah. about rabbinic Judaism. Right. So very quickly, one of the good things is the recognition that, at least by many rabbis, I mean, there's there's modern rabbis who take more of a reformed approach these days where they say, ah, the Bible's a storybook about the Jewish people who can say if it was written by God, who knows if God exists. That's the exception to the rule. By and large, rabbis developing or trusted rabbis who sort of are the authoritative voices throughout history on Jewish life absolutely believe that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is alive and active in the life of his people, even in the life of the nations, and that he has penned a book called the Jewish Scriptures, which is totally authoritative and meaningful in every season for the Jewish people. So even though rabbis are doing their best to interpret it and not always getting it right, I think there's something to be recognized and really applauded there or appreciated, even for our Christian audience, that it's the rabbis who have really held up the authority and the authenticity of Scriptures throughout history. And I think Paul talks about that in Romans 3, right? He's speaking to a Gentile audience in the church in Rome, and they're going, what's this whole Jewish thing anyway, right? So Paul starts Romans 3, verse 1. He says, what advantage then does the Jew have, right? Like he's answering the question maybe they're afraid to ask. And Paul says, much in every way, first of all, that unto them were committed the Holy Scriptures. So he's saying the Jewish people are responsible for having preserved and stewarded the words of the living God throughout history. So I think that's something positive we can recognize in what the rabbis are trying to do, even though they don't always get it right. And then the second thing I'll mention is this idea that I think has been lost or maybe through centuries of trauma or unfortunate circumstance the Jewish community today doesn't know what to do with. And it's this idea that Israel is a holy people. What do we mean by that? Better than others? No. God says, you're like the smallest and the most stubborn and the weakest of all people, but I love you. But the idea of holiness is set apart unto God as a chosen people. And the rabbis recognize the whole reason these guys are giving their lives to sit in libraries and study one another's words and study the Torah itself is because they recognize this irrevocable calling on the Jewish people inside and outside of Israel to be servants and witnesses of the glory of God. Okay? Now, they're doing that blind to the reality that the Messiah has come. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, but they're, they're doing their best. And it's that idea that God has made us distinct in the earth, and we have this responsibility to reflect his glory. Mm -hmm. So that's good, I think, that you know, for, for the Jewish community and for the Christian community. Yeah, so kind of the flip side, we've talked about rabbinic Judaism and the challenges and the good things, but let's talk about the other side, which is what we'll call biblical Judaism. Before we get to answering the question, which yeah. we will get to, define what is biblical Judaism. Yeah, so 
contrasting that with rabbinic Judaism, biblical Judaism at its root. And again, you know, I, we may have 15 theologians who listen to this and call in. That's okay. So this is the Ezra definition. Biblical Judaism is the idea that the scriptures speak for themselves, and it's based on what Moses and the prophets pointed to, and actually even what Jesus affirmed, right? Rabbi, what's the greatest commandment, right? Like, what's the basis of this whole thing? Uh, how, do we, how do we please God? And he says the greatest commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, and I think Moses would say also, on these two commandments, the entire law and the prophets are built. So every one of the other 611, 612 commandments are, are built on this idea of love God with everything and love your neighbor in the same way that you would want to be loved. So a biblical Judaism, uh, the, the good about saying biblical Judaism is trying to understand the scriptures through the lens of how do I love God as a Jewish person or as a Gentile, right, a non-Jewish person, and how do I love my neighbor as myself? Now, the challenge in kind of a biblical or a very literal Judaism is, again, you and I don't have a temple we can walk into in Jerusalem right now where we can bring our lamb and have a priest slaughter it and burn its entrails on Thank a goodness. fire as a pleasing aroma so to glad. the Lord. Right. Well, you know, there we go. The squeamish among us are, are rejoicing right now. Uh, but that's a problem, right? And I've actually heard, you know, in this whole, like, law versus grace debate, which I think, you know, we should actually talk about that in another podcast. Law versus grace, I think, is a false choice. Uh, but this, do you keep Jewish tradition or not, people go, okay, well, if you're telling me I should keep the Torah, then, you know, do, do I stab out my neighbor's eye if he accidentally pokes me in mine? Because an eye for an eye, right? Or if I sin, do I go down to you know, pets are us and buy two turtle doves and then get on a plane to Israel and slaughter them at twilight in the temple, right? Like I'm being obnoxious, but you, you can't literally keep a literal biblical Judaism today. So I would say a biblical Judaism is how do I love God with everything and love my neighbor as myself. And is it primarily all within the Bible, right? So rabbinic Judaism depends on sources outside of the Bible. Yeah. Biblical Judaism is all within right. the scriptures. And that's the big debate, actually, that's happening even among some Jewish leaders in Israel. I listened to some really interesting debates. They were in Hebrew and, you know, with the English subtitles at the bottom on YouTube. But this idea of a biblical Judaism, if somebody says, I keep biblical Judaism, what they're saying is, I hold to what God has said in his written word higher. I hold that in higher regard, higher esteem than how the rabbis have interpreted it. And it's not either or. Like, forget the rabbis. These guys, again, have given their lives to try to understand and interpret the scriptures for their people. But it's to say, if it comes down to here's what the Bible says, and a rabbi says something that directly contradicts what the Bible says, I'm going with the Bible. Got it. That would be, in a way, a biblical Judaism. Okay, that makes sense. So let's go back to the original question. Now that we've kind of yeah. defined some of these key terms, does a Messianic Jew, or do they have any obligation to obey Jewish tradition established by rabbis, or what we're calling rabbinic Judaism? Right, and the, the underlying question is, do Jewish believers have an obligation to stay Jewish? Okay, and then we'll talk about how do we stay Jewish. I think the answer, and we've talked about this on other podcasts, is I believe, you know, write in if you strenuously disagree, that's okay, but I would say we have, as Jewish men and women, as part of this house of Israel, right, this people that the Lord's seen fit to preserve in his faithfulness, we have what Paul calls an irrevocable gift, which is stewarding the word of God, right, 
and, and being his servants and witnesses, but also an irrevocable calling. And that remains true. Actually, that's fulfilled for us within the body of Messiah, the ecclesia is the Greek word. Um, so the idea that we're supposed to be Jewish and stay Jewish totally remains true as believers. Now, is it an issue of if I hide from that calling, am I going to hell? No, because ultimately my righteousness and my redemption and my being saved from an eternity apart from the God of Israel is through Jesus, just like it is for the non-Jewish person, right? There's one way, there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. But the issue of heaven or hell isn't the question of fulfilling a life calling. So being Jewish as a representation of, like Paul says, those natural olive branches that have been grafted back in as a signpost pointing to God's faithfulness to, to preserve and to bring a people to salvation, totally true. Now, the question is, do I rely on the rabbis to tell me how to do that? I think ultimately the entire New Testament is predominantly Jewish men interpreting their rabbi Jesus's words on here's what I, because he says I am one with the Father, really meant. Here's the spirit of the law. Here's the foundation of it. Here's the heart of the Father in this whole thing. And here's my new commandments to you. And new is a funny word. New is in essence saying go the extra mile. People say, ah, Jesus threw out the Torah. No, he didn't. He interpreted it according to the heart of the Father and the spirit in which it was written. And he actually challenged some of the rabbinic interpretations at that time by people who were making fences after fences after fences around the law to where it became such a heavy thing that nobody could keep it. And as Jesus points out, not even the men who were commanding people to. So there was hypocrisy going on. So just for clarity purposes, yeah. a Messianic Jew does not have any obligation to obey rabbinic Judaism. I think a Messianic Jew would do well to look at what the rabbis have said, right? These are the sages, the wise men among our people who have dedicated their lives to holding the word of God in very high regard. And there's tremendous tradition. There's fantastic insights into the scriptures that come from the work the rabbis have done. But at the end of the day, I would say the word of God, right? He, by his spirit, Jew and Gentile alike, he helps us to understand the living word, which is powerful and active in our lives. So if it's an either or, I'm going with the Bible every time. The rabbis can help inform my understanding of the Bible, just like for a Christian, you know, to relate to what I'm saying, a devotional guide or a Bible commentary, right? It's all helpful. But at the end of the day, if you said, well, what's more true, the scripture or that commentary you bought? I think we would all say, well, the scripture itself. So we have that responsibility to, you know, like Paul says, be a Berean, right? Look at what the rabbis say, just like you listen to what your pastor says, just like you listen to what that, you know, Christian teacher on Christian television says, or that Jewish leader says. But at the end of the day, we have to hold that up to that highest standard, which is the word of God itself. Yeah, that makes me think of that verse that says, do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I right. give you. Right, so rabbinic Jewish thought and writings, helpful for understanding the scriptures, for thinking about how we do Jewish life here, uh, you know, in my case, outside the land of Israel, in all of our case, with no temple to sacrifice in, that those days are not now. Uh, but ultimately, we should be uh, asking the Lord for wisdom and insight as we encounter his word for ourselves. And I think that's true for a Christian audience too, right? Like, listen to what your pastor says, but who's the highest authority in your life? Is it just what the pastor told you to do? Or do we have a responsibility as men and women who have that relationship with God to pray, to search out the scriptures, to get truth for ourselves and to ask God for his help in doing that? 
Yeah, and I think remembering that Jesus is like our ultimate rabbi right. is a good reminder yep. too. Even if yep. you think in that paradigm of rabbinic Judaism, he was the rabbi. He's totally. in the Bible. He was the rabbi. He's the rabbi above all rabbis. Totally. And we see that phrase over and over. Rabbi, how do? what's the greatest commandment? And what are they saying? They're saying teacher. That's what it literally means. Right. Teacher, help me understand what God requires of me. And he says, I will. Let me show you the heart of the Father and the spirit of the law. And by the way, in me it's fulfilled. And by my spirit in you is the only way you can live this out. Yeah. And yeah. that's the main idea. That's a great reminder. Um, I hope I hope we answered your question to the person that sent it in and to everyone else listening. If you have other questions, send them in and maybe we'll use them on a future episode. If you benefited from what you heard today and you feel others could benefit from hearing it too, we want to ask you to get involved and become a supporter. $50 gets this and other important messages out to a broader audience and gets life-saving medical care to one additional underserved Jewish person living far outside the land of Israel. As a thank you, we'll send you a bag of fresh roasted Ethiopian beans from our own Lost Tribes Coffee Company. These delicious beans are responsible for both the speed and intensity with which Ezra expresses himself on this podcast. Totally true, Carly. And if you're not ready to become a supporter today, just let us know that you listen by entering and giving a little bit of information. You'll be entered in a drawing to win a free bag of that Lost Tribes Coffee Company coffee. You can go to our website at jewandagentilediscuss.org or click in the show notes for more information. And if you want to hear more episodes, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcast content. And we'd also love if you leave us a review and share this podcast with someone you know. You can also follow us on social media at the handle A Jew and A Gentile Discuss. And if there's anything you want us to discuss or have us answer, please submit your questions at our website, ajewandagentiledisgust.org. This is Carly and Ezra. Thanks for listening to A Jew and A Gentile Discuss. Join us next week for another episode. The show is a production of Jewish Voice Ministries International.